This is Winning Slowly, taking a long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Chris Kreitcho. I would like a nap, and I have a marimba. <laughs> okay, it's not really a marimba. It's a MIDI keyboard sitting in front of me that's hooked up to a marimba sound. But I can play the Winning Slowly theme on the marimba now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Stephen Caridini, and uh, welcome to the 23rd and final episode of season eight <laughs> of Winning Slowly. I will promise not to do some marimba sound effects the entire episode, <laughs> but 23 episodes, everybody! Yay! That deserves a marimba roll. It does, it does. This is the recap episode. We're going to go back and look at what we've learned after reading 11 books. In a year. You know what I learned this season, Stephen? What did you learn, Chris? Global pandemics really suck. <laughs> that is a thing that we learned. <laughs> but also, we learned a lot about epistemology, yes. about ethics, yes. about technology, yes. about how sometimes the best books are the ones you don't, don't expect. expect to be awesome, mm -hmm. and the worst books are the ones that really could have been mm -hmm. awesome, yeah. and the author really let you down. Let you down. Let you down. So... We're not going to give a power rankings of our books, although we oh, definitely... Oh, well, Chris is going to go top to bottom, apparently. <laughs> but Robin Sloan is the top. Uh, well, is there, I can't disagree with you there. Sloan, Eisenstein, everybody else. That's uh, basically well, see, my I ranking. Would have, I would have a different ranking, but... Um, see, that's why it's fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we are going to touch on some themes that ran through that we, as we go forward in our careers and lives and winning slowly and everything will kind of stick with us. And for me, the first thing that stuck out in almost every book is the tension between users of technology, creators of technology, and those who govern technology. And everything that we talked about has a tension between users and the creators of the technology. And then many of them throw in a, a third angle of governance of those mm -hmm. same technologies. So talking about the real world of technology, dark matters, the age of spiritual machines, Jurassic Park, Twitter and tear gas. Contact. Contact. Yeah. These all have these connecting points where yeah. all three of these groups that have very different goals come together and try to basically make and do technology. So technology is not just the ability to make physical objects or digital objects. Otherwise, we would all be Kurzweil. <laughs> Please nor, don't be Kurzweil. Nor, nor is it all just uh, governance. Otherwise, we would all be uh, Ursula Franklin. Ursula Franklin. Right. Yep. Uh, it is it is a mix between users, creators, and governance. And insofar as we have talked quite a bit about the the users and the creators of technology, we have talked less about governance of techie over the past seasons. We've talked about it some civil forfeiture and things of this mm -hmm. nature, but we've talked less about it. And so that was something that stuck out to me is, is that how do we govern these things rightly so dark matters and the surveillance of blackness says here's how to do it badly yeah and real world of technology suggested some ways to do it 
that some of which we agreed with and some of which we did not. And Contact and Jurassic Park sort of showed, on the one hand, the abdication of government in Jurassic Park, and then the almost total control of technology in Contact, <laughs> the very heavy hand. Though with a nod toward the the rambunctious capitalist and i use yes. rambunctious there yes. on purpose because he's just I like do i, I do want. what i want yo uh, <laughs> i'm jeff bezos before jeff bezos was jeff bezos that's right and so and then of course twitter and tear gas is literally about governance of technology mm-hmm. that's the whole point of the book so there's there's this group of ideas about how do we go about this and i really like that we got so many different angles on how you should do this yes yeah, what we should do about it. And I definitely don't fall on the postmodern condition side of the table on how we should govern, <laughs> but it is, Why ever not? I don't know, but it is, it's been compelling to me as I've been thinking back, looking at these various ways of, of governance and saying, yeah, I mean, I think there's some good things to take from that. As we said, glowingly on the couple episodes back, Twitter and tear gas takes, a really productive tack, if nothing else, on how to go forward in this vein. But a lot of the other books, too, pointed out critical areas that we need to think about. And as I'm getting more and more interested in policy around these issues, that was one of the things that stood out to me, both from a self-selecting bias, this is something I'm interested in, but also something that genuinely appears frequently. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to call out there that, as we noted talking about Twitter and tear gas, there aren't a lot of people with actually concrete policy proposals for our current era. Yeah. And it, that's not surprising. As we noted when we read through the chunk of Elizabeth Eisenstein that we did, and aside, I may go back and finish the rest of that book over Christmas break because I really liked it. Just had a lot of I other like things to, to believe read. that I will do that, but I sort of <laughs> know that I won't. As we saw there, things were in flux for somewhere between half a century and a century on the development of new legal norms, arguably many centuries after the introduction of yeah. the printing press. We really shouldn't be surprised that roughly 30 years into the internet era and only less than a century into the era of computers, we're still working out the policy ramifications and implications. We yeah. are relative to the introduction of the public internet compared to the introduction of the printing press. We're at about, oh, I don't know, 1530? Yeah. We've got a long ways to go yet. It's not surprising that we haven't figured it out. So when Tufeki is throwing out some ideas and Ben Thompson is throwing out some ideas and both of them acknowledging these are partial, incomplete, and likely to have unknown failure modes in them, mm-hmm. that's exactly what we should expect here. Yeah. And yet their willingness to push in that direction. And like like you said, I really, really appreciated Simone Brown's willingness to push against the whole history of technology and its application to race in mm-hmm. America, very enlightening in a very, very discomforting way, yeah. but a way that a lot of people should be discomforted. Yeah. Those were really good. And I think that intersection between users, governance, and 
creators of technology is an area that warrants further exploration, whether that's us, whether that's us in book form, whether that's us in podcast form, whether that's us in putting together some website, who knows. But these are areas we're interested in medium to long term. Yeah. It's areas that my job takes me directly into on the creator side. Mm -hmm. It's areas that Steven's job takes him into both potentially as an advocate for policies, as a user, and here and there as a creator as well, especially over the rest of his career. There's a lot of room for drilling down into that. And I learned a lot this season. I'll note as an aside that the variety of things that we called out there was fabulous. The breadth of our reading this year, while it didn't quite hit necessarily all the areas we originally thought it might have. I mean, our original list of books has something like 40 books on it, so we were never going to get through that. But the the range from Sloan to Plato and from Leotard to Eisenstein and Mm -hmm. from Sagan to Brown. Mm -hmm. It's a lot. And and Kurzweil. And Kurzweil. (laughs) And I curse your name, Kurzweil. (laughs) As an aside, Stephen, I am going to make you give me a ranked list at the end. I will do that. I will do that. I have my ranked list oh, here. Oh, good. And it's it's a little different than I, I said oh, when good, I actually pl- good, plowed through yeah, them. So. Yeah, there you go. Okay. So I, the other thing I really wanted to touch on as I was thinking about the whole sweep of the season is that the response to new knowledge is almost as important as the mediating technologies that bring it. And I say this because we accidentally ended up reading a lot in the 80s. <laughs> Yoinks. Even when we tried Even not when to. We tried not Don't to. forget, listeners, contact. We were like, okay, we're going to get out of the 80s. And we didn't check when the book was written in public. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, if you're trying to get out of a particular decade, you should check sure. when. Sure. Make sure, yeah. But I don't regret reading Contact because it makes this point you're making that much clearer. Yes, so we read Contact and Evolution as a Religion and The Real World of Technology and Jurassic Park and that's it actually because spiritual machines yeah leotard was the 70s yeah late yeah early 70s and and spiritual machines was 10 years later but so that's that's four books out of 11 that were all roughly in the same era from the the early 80s to the late 80s and they have roughly the same amount of informational knowledge roughly the same amount of technological awareness and they are wildly but different Whoa. wildly wildly different Whoa, are they different and partially that's because they have different responses to that information so Crichton, when he looks at technology in the 80s he's like man this is gonna go bad science and technology plus capitalism equals bad also let's do that with dinosaurs <laughs> Because why not? Dinosaurs are awesome, right? No, dinosaurs are terrible. They will eat you. Yeah, yeah. Literally. So, like, we talk about technology eating the world. Dinosaurs will like, no, literally, the dinosaurs will actually eat you. R.I.P. Dennis Nedry. But uh, the real world of technology has a lot of the same concerns that technology plus capitalism equals bad, but does it in a way that says, so we need to go over here and fix governance instead of fixing science. Cause I care about governance, not about science per se, even though she's a scientist, but in this particular book, yep, governance. And then you have Sagan who's talking about science plus religion and technology is on top of that. It's sort of a way to get to technology and religion. And then you have evolution as a religion, which is also about religion, but it's about religion and science telling the scientists to get off of religion's turf (laughs) 
instead of like, hey, we can get along together. So like Midgley and Sagan are like sort of the opposite ends of the same argument. Despite the fact that Midgley doesn't have anything uh, like she's if anything, I actually can't. I don't even know what to yeah. say. There. How does she feel about Christianity proper? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> she's just mad at science. Yeah, like. Yeah, I've, I, there's definitely a cardboard cutout in that book called <laughs> Religion. And it's like, science, you can't even make it to the cardboard cutout. <laughs> yeah, what are right. you doing? Uh, yeah, so that's a thing. So that was important to me is thinking about the ways that we respond to this new knowledge are important. Because you can't just like drop a computer on someone and expect that they're all going to do the same thing with it. Which we know that, but it's when you put that in front of you in four different books, you're like, wow, that's you really it's really real. Yeah, you can't (laughs) get the same thing out of four different people. And obviously that makes sense. We know this, but it was really played out very clearly. And I thought that was really important. And it also I mean, that's what Eisenstein tells us. Right. Is that like things get weird when you add new technology Uh like I like that summary of Eisenstein. (laughs) Things get weird when you add new technology. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you add the age of spiritual machines, which that's like roughly the 2000s and late 90s. And you've got Kurzweil just going off into the stratosphere. And then like 12 years later, you have Penumbra. And 17 years mm-hmm. later, you have tear, Twitter and tear gas. You're like, wow, something must have changed. Or maybe people are just different. You know, <laughs> yep. maybe people are just different. Could, some of both. Yeah. <laughs> some call me, some call me. Yeah. So I think that's really important to remember is that, you know, especially when you're dealing with people that do things that are weird to you. And you're like, why are you doing this thing? <laughs> you're doing it wrong they might be but they also might just come from a different background and a different set of concerns and be doing something that you wouldn't normally do something that's totally legitimate that you wouldn't normally do or illegitimate as the evolution as a religion case may be (laughs) guess which one's at the bottom of my list oh man i think it's gonna be at the bottom of mine (laughs) (laughs) the thing i'll say to pick up on that one of the key points I noticed in reading these to riff a little on what Stephen just said in some ways and then expand on it is the way that your your priors, your existing view of reality, your worldview informs how you interpret new ideas and new technology, how you fit them into your frames. Those existing things in your mental frames can end up dominating your response. So if you have an existing materialist outlook and our pro tech, you end up where Kurzweil does. Yeah. But materialism is a necessary but insufficient component of that because Crichton and Sagan are both basically materialists and they don't end up in anything like the place that Kurzweil does because of their other existing priors. Mm -hmm. And so your epistemology is not one thing. There is a version of worldview analysis that's common in certain certain segments of conservative Christianity that tends to bracket it narrowly that way. But worldview, as we're talking about it here, epistemology, as we're talking about it here, is actually really hard to nail down. Yeah. And these, these different responses are illustrative of that, that you can have three different people, and there are others on this list who are in the same bucket, who are very much materialists in a formal sense. The matter is all that there is. Yeah. And end up in 
just incredibly diverse places in their ethics, in their epistemology and response to things, how, what you can know and how, in their eschatologies, mm-hmm. as it were, mm-hmm. what they think the future looks like and how we can or cannot get there, what is inevitable and what is not, etc. Yeah. Epistemology is really complicated and... Uh, your understanding of how the world fits together is not something you can just be like, ah, that person's a materialist. This is what they think. Ah, that person's a Orthodox Christian. That's what they think. It turns out that we're all assembling these things from, as Stephen said, wildly different backgrounds. And that can lead us to wildly different conclusions, even with very similar starting points, even with very similar sets of data. Now, the flip side of that is that new tech and new ideas do actually change people's frames on the world. Somebody who starts out fairly optimistic about things can end up fairly not optimistic about things. Somebody who starts his career as a working scientist who kind of thinks science is great can end up writing that dinosaurs will eat you. And more and more skeptical over the course of his career of many things. Crichton's last few novels were kind of like, people suck, journalists especially. Yeah, that makes me sad. <laughs> and and Fair point, though. The, the things that happened over the course of Crichton's lifetime and the course of his career meshed with his priors and his experiences in a way that shaped his final views in the last decade of his life to be much darker even than Jurassic Park is. And likewise... Looking at other people's trajectories and looking like, at my own trajectory. Like Sagan. Sagan has the opposite yeah. trajectory where he started out like yeah. hardcore, atheist, materialist, antagonistic. And by the time he gets in contact, he's like, I don't know. like Maybe there's stuff I don't know. It could, Maybe there. It could be fine. Like it might be a mesh of spirituality and science. Maybe there are means of knowing. Yeah. Like the thing that struck me the most about Sagan is that he moved very much by that point in his life to... And agnosticism on the question of epistemology. Yeah. How do we know? That maybe there's stuff I don't know about how we know. Maybe there's m- more yeah. ways of knowing. Which is true agnosticism. Yeah. And that, I think, was one of the more beautiful turns in this yeah. season that I didn't expect to see coming was Sagan's, there are ways of knowing that aren't the scientific method. Scientific method is a useful and valid way of knowing, but it's not the only one, and it's got its limits. Yeah. And... That was lovely. Well done. Yeah. Both of those point ultimately, both the ways that are existing deep-seated beliefs about reality and how we think about and how we know shape new technology and new ideas and vice versa, led me to another note that we've hit on in many, many times in seasons past. And that is the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And Robin Sloan's take is probably the funniest and also most poignant and telling on this, that you could throw all the computing power in the world from Google at a problem and not be able to solve it Mm. because the kinds of things that Google can do are different than what a person who has grown in wisdom can do over time. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Penumbra for all his failures in the book Mm. is a person who's grown in wisdom Mm -hmm. And our lead character, Clay, My boy. is also a person who's growing in wisdom. And together, mm-hmm. they get to someplace really beautiful that Google itself couldn't, couldn't get, like, it's number crunching can't do right. because they're different things. And Sloan's, hey, these are both valuable. Yeah. But they're different. Yep. And we shouldn't mistake them for each other. It was a lovely note to end the season on. I'm really glad that was the last yeah. book we've read. I also agree with that, in particular, thinking about the real world of technology, right? Like, yeah. 
the whole point of the real world of technology is that like you can't just abstract technology out of its consequences and its users and its contexts. Yeah. And so the the problem of technology for Franklin is a moral problem. Mm-hmm. Whereas the problem of technology for Leotard, except for the ending, the postscript, <laughs> is really a technical problem. It is we use these things inappropriately or we should not use them. Uh, which is a form of moralism, but it's not the same as Franklin's like, here are the moral problems of this type of technology, and here are the moral ways we should go forward. The USSR wasn't that bad. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) Such a weird, weird... It was a real... But it's a a moral approach, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm making equivalences, and I'm making distinctions, and this is bad, and that is less bad, and this is okay Mm -hmm. and this is good and so you know and then obviously like dark matters is all about like tech is bad for because it has no morals whatsoever also humans are bad and they need better morals so there's like definitely the subcurrent of like how do we use technology collectively and individually and how does that turn out to moral ends whether we want it to or not like the best part of dark matters the inability to see black people with certain types of technical viewing devices you know that's a moral sort of thing to say like you didn't intend this to happen but like it did and it's your problem now like fix it yeah and the recognition that the fact value distinction is maybe a little less strong than some of our authors want it to be yeah uh that the these facts have implications for values and vice versa. The facts fall out of like the facts that exist exist because of the values of the people who created these technologies and employed them in these ways. There's no, you know that the best though, Mary Midgley, <laughs> that's lit the whole point of her book. <laughs> I think she said it the most. I think she said uh, it the loudest. I don't know if she said it the best. Well, that's fair. Uh, I would say I mean, that, that was my quibble with her book yes. was that she said it so poorly yes. that people didn't hear yes. it. But I think that's literally her point is that fact, fact and value are, are linked. Oh yeah, for sure. And they are not just abstract, unidentified, right. unconnected elements. Places I think we'll go from here. Well, as we noted in our previous episode, we're going to take a bit of a break. Well, we're going to, we're going to rest we'll, up. We'll be back after a bit, but we, as in Stephen and I, as people who think about these things, and even if we stopped winning slowly at some point, we would not stop talking about these things because true that we can't. That's that's sort of how it's <laughs> that's why winning slowly it's exists. Sort of how it kept going because yeah. we were already talking about these things. We can't Let's stop. give ourselves a professional excuse to do what we were already going to be doing. <laughs> exactly. I think key points for me are thinking about governance. Yeah. And policy making and shaping, but giving that appropriately robust ethical and technical foundations. Yeah. One of the key failures I see in the few folks who've started making gestures toward policy changes in Congress and presidential candidates and the like over the last couple of years is and has been the key failing of a lot of technologically oriented policy in general, in the West, and that is a deep ignorance of the technical details. And that's to be expected. Technical changes happen quickly. And as in the era of the advent of the printing press, it's caused enough change fast enough that people's existing worldviews are often 
especially people who are old enough to be in positions of significant policymaking power, 50 and up, are largely formed in an era where all of the things are different enough that the policy choices they want to make are often worse because those things made sense under different technological conditions. But when you try to apply them to this technological condition, you actually just create more and worse problems. And that's not an easy problem to solve. Which also, side note, uh, shout out to everybody who made the Communications Decency Act, which was one of the worst pieces of legislation that ever passed, except for the one part that was the absolute best part that ever passed. I don't even know how you did that. <laughs> Probably on accident. It's amazing how terrible the CDA is, except for the one part that's amazing. But the the net of it is that I think we want to be involved in, to varying degrees and in varying ways, but we want to be involved in describing rightly both how the technologies actually work, mm-hmm. and props here in particular to Ben Thompson yeah. and Zainab Tufeki, who are probably the two people doing this best that I know of today, actually getting the details of how the like mechanics of these things work, how they play out sociologically and economically. That's really important because if you get those wrong, your policy responses are going to be wrong. Yeah, sub shout out to Electris Madrigal, who's also doing a pretty good job. Mm, yes, absolutely. And there are others we've referenced in the past, Jacobs and Sakasas and so yep. on. But I think doing the work not just of saying, here are the failure modes, but also here are the, the success modes, and here are the dangers of the success modes, mm-hmm. and and how do we channel these things? How do we shape them? How do we say no to some of them? But to do those things, we need both accurate descriptions of the technologies and how those interact with the rest of the world, with existing technologies, with human nature, et cetera. But then we also need an appropriate moral frame. So to hit a note that we signaled back a couple seasons ago, when the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission put out their statement on AI, on the one hand, we applauded that they were trying to do this work. On the other hand, they just had a bunch of what we took to be fairly basic mistakes on both of these categories. And we... We called them on that. But if we're going to get this stuff right, we have to do better than that. And that, again, is a place where Stephen and I want to be involved going forward. And one of the things that's, you know, valuable and came through in these books is that, you know, the ERLC got some things wrong because they believe some things that are wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not that they like made a mistake and they're like, oh, yeah, we got to go fix that. It's like, no, they genuinely believe some things that result in these other things that are wrong. (laughs) And so I think that there's a uh, formational aspect Mm -hmm. that I'm interested in, which is like, how do you develop this sort of thinking without reading, listening to eight seasons of a podcast, right? Like, how do you develop this formational sort of approach, right? This development of a, a, ideal, a a sort of aesthetic and ethic and moral ideal around the policies of technology. And so that's something that I'm particularly interested in beyond the policy stuff that I'm obviously very interested in is that it's, it's good to have policy and to be able to make arguments for it that beat other arguments, but it would be better if everybody had similar starting points and then we could have even 
more fine-grained and interesting conversations because we wouldn't have to start talking about like, well, have you read Simone Brown? Like, this is a horrible <laughs> idea. Right. Like, if you've read that book, you don't need me to say anything else, right? But if you haven't read it, then we have to go through this conversation, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it's not reasonable to expect everybody to have read everything. But the the point is that if you have this sort of framework where people come to things with similar backgrounds or, you know, at least substantially recognizable to each other backgrounds. Yeah, mutually comprehensible. Yeah, like some if someone said I'm a hard materialist, I'm like, okay, I got that. Like, I kind of know where you're coming from. Like, obviously, there's going to be some variances, but like, in general, like, you're not going to be super interested in like the long-term eschatological concerns. Like, that's fine. Now we know. <laughs> and or your <laughs> eschatological long-term concerns are going to be super weird, hikers while. Yeah, super. Yeah, or super weird. Yeah, I was thinking about... uh Contact not about Kurzweil. <laughs> you will get really weird if you're Kurzweil. Both of those are fiction. Don't forget. Oh, zing. <laughs> but yeah, so I think that those are the, the areas that I'm most interested in is, is one, specifically going for policy and understanding and analyzing how tech policy is made, how it could be made, what sorts of things we should want to do long term, what sorts of things are good as middle steps, because, you know incrementalism is a thing in policy even if people don't want it to be it that's how policy works it's true and so but then beyond that like sort of continuing to distill these ideas into ways of being discernible and understandable to others yeah and i'll say the last thing that i've been thinking about both in this context and in many others is the possibility of persuasion and particularly the possibility of persuasion when, as we touched on, especially with Tufeki, people end up living in, in almost entirely different epistemic worlds because of the way that social media yeah. and classic television media and so on are all, and YouTube and... Well, and, and our governmental system that's set up in a binary yep, and, you know, there's exactly a lot of reasons... Mm -hmm. But the difficulty ahead of us in many ways is not just, you know, as we, we opened with here, given the same information, but wildly disparate epistemic frames, people end up in different places. And right. so you could have somebody read all of the same books we read mm -hmm. and without a way to bridge that gap and not just to bridge it in terms of comprehensibility, though I think that's the bare minimum and we have mm. to get that far, mm -hmm. but also to bridge it in terms of being able to change people's minds, including our own, being willing to have our own changed is part of that. Yeah. But but one of the challenges, it seems to me, in our discourse, and therefore a thing I'm thinking a lot about, is the extent to which we end up in a mode of explaining or elaborating or deepening our knowledge in a an area where we already think something or our audience already agrees with us to mm -hmm. some extent. Mm -hmm. I read a post on things political and theological a month ago, and I was reflecting after I read it that while I agreed with it, and I thought it was a good explanation of basically how I think about these things, if I were to hand it to a couple friends with whom I had some robust and rousing disagreements over the political season that we Americans just left— it would not change their mind because it wasn't written to change minds. Yeah. It was written to explain and deepen. And I think so much of what I see happening is that right down to the explainers in Vox and so on. 
And honestly, a lot of what we do and have done has not been aimed so much at persuading people who already disagree with us to change their minds. Mm-mm. It's been trying to provide a frame for people who are sympathetic to our project of how to think more about this and yeah. starting with ourselves. But all of you who are listening are probably not people who are inclined to disagree with us. You wouldn't be here at episode 23 of season eight, which is actually the ninth season because we did season zero. Yeah. If you didn't already have a, a sympathy toward where we're coming from in mm. the, our project. Right. And so the possibility and the mechanics of persuasion yeah. in the questions of epistemology are the other big open yeah. kind of unanswered question for me. Yeah. And actually I'm, I'm, more positive on that potential front than you are because I feel strongly that tech politics are not owned by either side of the table. Mm -hmm. And there are times where I have some rather strange bedfellows when I talk about certain things. Like when you start talking about net neutrality, you start getting some weird partners like, wait, what are you Uh doing over here? Like, (laughs) I thought you were going to be on the other side. I thought you were going to be on the other side. Well, here we are. Like when one of your most right wing Republican senators and one of your more left wing presidential candidates are offering very similar policies for regulating tech. You're thinking interesting, huh? Interesting. Maybe it doesn't cut across the normal boundaries. And I think that's, a, right. a longest term for me, like, um, concern is like, what are the ways that people think about technology outside of the traditional binary that we think of? Because it doesn't mm-hmm. really work that way. It's people have different priors, different concerns that mesh in certain unique ways that produce, uh, you know, techno communism or like top-down authoritarian capitalism, right? Like, you know, those are very different things, but you could get both of those from the Libertarian Party. Yeah, very much so. (laughs) Which is weird. That's weird. You're not wrong. (laughs) I think for me, I actually have more optimism on that front on tech policy than I do more generally because of the factor you just said we haven't hardened into our positions nearly as much there which is why it's so much fun to be doing this right now it really is yeah i don't know though it's going to be an interesting future yeah may (laughs) 2021 should be in interesting times as they say a blessing or a curse always (laughs) yes okay so here's my list i'll go from the bottom up uh, the bottom 11. I feel like I should get out like a snare kit and just start playing it. <laughs> yeah. 11 is Evolution as a Religion. I did not like that book. It was not good. Uh, 10, The Age of Spiritual Machines. It's <laughs> ridiculous. Like, it's not as bad in as midgley in terms of the way it argues, but it's just a, it's a bad set of ideas. Nine is Phaedrus by Plato because I've read it before and I think it's bonkers. <laughs> I think that the parts that were relevant to us are good, but a lot of it is just bonkers. It's fair. Eight, The Real World of Technology. Uh, I liked this book, but I had some severe concerns, so it got dropped down. Uh, Seven, Dark Matters and the Surveillance of Blackness. I will actually cite and quote this book a lot, but it Mm -hmm. was a challenging book to read. Mm -hmm. And so it... in. If I was just ranking on utility, it would be farther up the list. But in terms of like the amount of entertainment and like the <laughs> amount of like engagement that I had with it is lower because I was sort That's of fair. like, oh, this is so sad. This is hard and difficult. Yeah. And I 
feel bad that all this happened. Mm -hmm. So six Jurassic Park by Crichton. It was a lot of fun. It's kind of violent. It was kind of, I was not expecting that. Um, I mean, I should, but like, I still wasn't. Dinosaurs eating people, man. I I don't know. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Five is Contact. We're getting into the like fine distinctions at this point because I loved Mm -hmm. Contact. thought it was great. It was surprisingly on point as we talked about. Also surprisingly 80s. Surprisingly 80s. Shouldn't have been surprising, but it was. Surprisingly 80s. Uh, Four is The Postmodern Condition by Leotard. I really enjoyed reading it this time. I've read it before and I understood it better this time than I did the first time for sure. I enjoyed it. And one of the reasons I really liked the ending post-Coda, it was really, I sort of grokked that better now that I've been, I've read a lot more and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, Duchamp, like I get where we're going here. I can see that. So I really liked that book. If I'd read it before, I think I may, I don't think that was the first time I read it, but maybe it was anyway, but I really liked that one. Three, Printing Press is Agent of Change. It was great. It was dense. The footnotes were annoying. <laughs> two, I love the footnotes. We'll get there, though. To Mr. Penumbra, because I just had an absolute blast reading that book. Yep. It was brilliant. And the number one, Twitter and Tear Gas, because I had fun reading it, and I'm going to actually cite it in my academic work frequently. So yep. it was the top of both charts. Like if I'd put utility <laughs> and entertainment on two separate lists, it would still be at the top of both. It's a reasonable list. And Listeners who've figured out how similarly Stephen and I think about things, you're going to be very amused by my list. There are some differences, but not very many. <laughs> Number 11, Mary Midgley, Evolutionist of Religion. This book, honestly, I think I think The Age of Spiritual Machines is the worst book like as an actual book. But the problem is that Midgley had so much potential and yeah. just blew it so catastrophically oh, badly. Man. Like, There's an interesting argument here, and you made it so very badly yeah that i just hated reading this like i'm your prime audience i'm set up to agree (laughs) we've been over it i'm not going to reiterate it but it goes below kurzweil for that reason only yeah number 10 kurzweil Kurzweil. number nine for me was actually leotard the postmodern condition yeah not because i hated it but because it just didn't land for me i thought it said some interesting things but Especially when he started talking about physics, he just made me angry. Yeah, that's <laughs> completely so fair. <laughs> and in in his defense, he later admitted, I was totally wrong making up crap about this. I didn't know what I was talking about. Hadn't read the original sources. Please ignore it. So Leotard himself would also rank it lower on his list of his own writings. <laughs> so I he feel did. justified. Yeah, that's fair. I put number eight also as Franklin for almost identical reasons. Yeah. I liked it. It was a good book. I'll refer to it. Mm. I was kind of vaguely low-level disappointed with it, I think. I think the thing that got me really down on it ultimately was her wanting to be like, the USSR, not really that bad. How many people did they kill, Franklin? Yeah. It was hard to overlook that. It really was. Yeah. And she said a lot of good things. I think it's very useful in situating technology in a moral frame. Yeah. And arguing for how we could do that in some very concrete terms. I, I thought it was good there, but... It was in this case, we start hitting the point of like, yeah, this stuff was good and fine. And now I just kind of have to rank them against each other. Yeah. Number seven was Sagan's Contact. Hmm. I really enjoyed it, Hmm. but it was less influential in my thinking, less interesting, less teaching me something new than the other things higher up the list. Yeah, fair. Number six was Plato's Phaedrus, which I hadn't read before. And 
I got it. It worked well for me. I understand his argument, even more I disagree with his argument. It just, it did the thing it needed to do solidly middle of the road there. It's yeah, literally I mean, right in the middle of my list. It did the thing is a number six for sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right above that, number five, I have Crichton's Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're pretty close on the order yep. of that one. Yep. I think that one probably got some bonus for how much it surprised me for what it did and how well it did it. Yeah. And really of everything I've read of Crichton's, and I haven't read his entire oeuvre, but I've read a bunch of it. And I think Jurassic Park is probably his best that I have read, especially on this front. Matters, it's, yeah. It's solidly in the mix and the running with other stuff I've read for the quality of it as mm-hmm. a thriller. Mm-hmm. But in terms of saying something, yeah. this one, maybe it's just because it's the one I agree with the most. Uh, but it, I think it says it without, in general, going too far on it. It, it doesn't devolve into a rant. Mm. And he gives you enough... Even when he has his mouthpiece rambling for paragraphs <laughs> at a time, he also gives you reasons to doubt that his mouthpiece is 100% correct. That's true. And, and so I'll just give him credit there. It's he's good. a he's a good, doing good work. Mm. Number four was Simone Brown, Dark Matters, mm. because it was one of the more important books we read. Yeah. I think I felt about it the same way you did, but even more. It was easily the hardest book for me to get through. Mm-hmm. Because it's just such a slog. And I was working through hard stuff personally when we read it. Stuff going on with our kids really struggling with COVID in the world and everything else. It was a hard time in life. And reading that book was hard. But I still think it's one of the most important books. And if I had to pick one book from this list to hand to somebody, I don't know which one I would choose. But this one would be in the running. Because it's the kind of thing that if you haven't grappled with these things especially as regards the use of technology, I think you really should. And there are other books that are more fun and that might be more productive for positive stuff. But in some ways I can recommend to Fecky the way I will in a moment, in part because also we've read Brown. That's true. And I think you need both. That's true. Eisenstein at number three. It's just one of those masterful works that everybody else here either should have referenced or did did reference or... Sloan didn't, I'm not sure Sloan has read her, but he's certainly influenced at minimum indirectly by her work and is riffing on the things that she brought in. But otherwise, everybody, I mean, okay, Plato gets off. He was writing 2,000 years before (laughs) the printing press happened, so he gets a pass. Uh, 2,500 years before Eisenstein, you know, we'll, we'll let you off the hook. But everybody else here either did or should have, and it showed that they hadn't. So very, very good. Also just a really good writer. Uh, especially for the dense quality of what she's trying to do and what she's dealing with. And then number two, Sloan, because just the delight. And like I said in our episode about him, teaching people to feel the right things about technology, mm. which is mm. hard to overstate the value of. Yeah. And then Tufeki at the top, because that book was just masterful in every way. Really was. And the number of places I could disagree with her was so short because she just did her work so well. It's like, you yeah, can't, I, my favorite, you're going to have a hard time saying she's wrong. My favorite here. thing about Defecki is that anytime she said something remotely controversial, she chose a source to back it up. Be like, this person says it, not me. I'm like, that's how it works. Actually. <laughs> that's yeah. what we do here. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's brilliant. So that's my list. That's great. And it was a good season. It was a lot of fun. And, And we learned. We'll be back eventually, probably, maybe. 
Probably. I mean, we just said, here's some things we want to talk about in the future. So I think we just have to get to the point that we usually do with seasons where it's like, I think it's time to do more Winning Slowly. I miss it. But we'll. But, but who, who knows? knows? You could get the Winning Slowly book instead. Well, that would we, we don't know. legit. So the music at the beginning of the episode was used by permission. Please don't use it without permission. <laughs> or it was just marimbas. It literally if, might if be just marimbas. it's just marimbas, it was Chris. <laughs> you can't use that without permission either, but he wrote it and gave himself permission to use it <laughs> and if if we do that it'll be creative commons licensed just like the outro which you're going to hear sorry Herb, i did give you the marimba variant of the opening riff but you're still going to hear the yeah, piano version at the end it's true it's true but i love the piano version it's, it's so yeah nice. I, I think herb's main problem is that like for the general hopefulness of our podcast it's sort of a downer at the end it's melancholy yeah, i think yeah. he's disappointed about that i still think that's the right feeling because it's it's hopeful and it's it it's doing the robin sloan move it's hopeful it's happy it's got some cheer in it but it's not unambiguous it's 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 a little ambiguous it's it's so it's we will keep walking and we will keep asking questions that's our podcast and that's what the theme does so sorry herb you gotta get over it Thank you to all who support our podcast. We will be pausing uh, donations from our Patreon so that you don't give to uh, Void because that's not good. Uh, but yep. we really do thank you. It keeps all of our lights on and the various technical aspects that we need to keep running. And Indeed. That's a huge, huge thing. We really appreciate it. We, we don't just say that perfunctory at the end of every episode. It really no. is a... We really do. ...a encouraging thing to see people wanting to support this monetarily true story if you'd like to send us interseason notes comments questions suggestions for future seasons suggestions for books we should write etc suggestions for musical things we should do on the show maybe we'll have winning slowly the musical my wife would love that and (laughs) oh man that would be awesome i can't wait for the big encore (laughs) number kickstarting a hyper local super farm (laughs) kickstarting now now i now i kind of want to go write that (laughs) The hyper I, I need to do work today, Stephen. Come on. Super fun. If you would like to send us notes, including musical notes, <laughs> you can do so at hello at winningslowly.org or on Facebook or on Twitter at Winning Slowly. Stephen will see the latter two. I will not. Between seasons, who knows? I might even answer an email. I might send you back a musical snippet. You never know what'll happen. Until we speak again, thanks for listening. But as we read in the chunk of Eisenstein that we read, that was a bad version of that sentence. (laughs) (laughs) And as always, if you'd like to send us notes, you did say that you can. Did you? I didn't actually finish it. Oh, yeah, sure. You didn't finish it. I was starting it.